Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. My co-host, Amber Gagarian, is out today. A reminder that you can find our August print edition across the city in our red and white news boxes in public libraries, independent bookstores, cafes, social movement centers, centers, and other venues. You can also find our latest uh, online coverage at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T dot O-R-G. We have another amazing show for you today. In the first half of today's show, I'll speak with State Senator Jessica Ramos of Queens, uh, well, about many things, including climate change, the city's failed response to the migrant crisis, and her reaction to growing speculation that she just might challenge Mayor Eric Adams in the 2025 Democratic mayoral primary. Stay tuned for her response uh, to that question. In the second half of the show, I'll speak with uh, indie contributing editor Nicholas Powers. Uh, He's uh, working on a on a book that will soon be complete about uh, the new psychedelic uh, revolution taking place in this country. And uh, also, uh, Nick is about to set out on his annual pilgrimage to the Burning Man Festival out in Nevada. He's been going out to that for about 20 years and will fill us in on on Burning Man. It's uh, something of a, a cultural spectacle that's gotten bigger and bigger over the years. And uh, Nick uh, has been about part of that for a long time. Also helped co-found the uh, People of Color camp at Burning Man. So we always uh, enjoy having uh, Nick on the show to share his uh, latest uh, thoughts on, on what he's up to. And um, But first we turn uh, uh, to an interview with uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos. Uh, we started out talking about uh, climate change. Uh, she uh, recently came back from a trip to Denmark. Uh, where she went with a labor delegation to uh, learn more about how the Danes are really pioneering uh, renewable energy and, and uh, doing it with a unionized uh, workforce. Uh, of course, we're uh, living in a moment where, I mean, just this summer alone, New York City has been blanketed with uh, wildfire smoke. The South is uh, suffering under a heat dome. We have a hurricane that just uh, roared through. Uh, Southern California and of course the horrible wildfires, uh, out in Hawaii. So, uh, action is urgent. And, uh, um, so I started out asking her, uh, about, uh, her uh, work around climate change. Uh, so let's just, uh, uh, jump right into it. Earlier this summer, uh, you went all the way to Denmark, uh, to, uh, look for some possible uh, uh, knowledge that could be gained about how New York could uh, uh, get out ahead of the curve on uh, renewable energy. Uh, New York has set all these high uh, standards and goals, but has been uh, rather sluggish in, in meeting those goals. What did you see in Denmark that you found uh, so hopeful? Well, one of the greatest things that I saw in Denmark was these really tall uh, wind turbines, both onshore and offshore, um, all across Denmark, actually. And really, I wanted to go there to see how this all has worked out for them because I've been desperately trying to find solutions to help my neighbors avoid a lot of the catastrophes that we've already suffered. You know, I, I represent 
a waterfront community in uh, Queens, uh, the neighborhoods of Jackson Heights, East Elmhurst, which is right on Flushing Bay, um, and Corona, places that often get flooded when there's heavy rainfall. I mean, Hurricane Ida two years ago really did us in. And then, of course, well, we want to put people back to work with good union jobs that are going to allow for them to provide for themselves and their families. So think putting all of these needs together, we wanted to see what the country that is doing the most and is actually on pace to reach net zero carbon neutrality um, by 2050, how it is that they're doing it um, and hopefully apply a lot of those lessons and even those relationships here in New York State. And mind you, obviously, Denmark is a very different country. The entire population of the country is over 5 million people, which is half of the population of New York City alone. Um, and it's a more homogenous society. So getting people to change their consumer behavior, to have these conversations around serious investments in wind and solar and um, geothermal and even battery storage um, is much easier. I mean, unfortunately, here we still have too many climate deniers, um, which is preventing us from taking action. And, you know, we actually want to make sure that we are taking offshore wind seriously. We want to see how we can accelerate the pace of our transition here in New York, because the CLCPA was great. The Bill of Public Renewables Act was great. We've done some really good legislative work, but that's not the mission, right? The legislation is actually the tool to get to the point where we are on pace to carbon neutrality ourselves. So we want to make sure that we're putting our tax dollars where our, our mouth is and really start investing in these industries and creating the supply chain behind uh, behind them so that we are fomenting an industry and therefore creating good union jobs that will bring um, a whole new paradigm to our economy as well. And so can you see a scenario in five or ten years where there's uh, lots of uh, giant uh, wind turbines off the uh, the coast of uh, New York? I can. I do see that in our future, and I'm actually hoping it's a lot sooner. There are some wind turbines that are actually on their way to the south shore of Long Island, so it's not so far-fetched. It's starting. We're just working a little too slow. And, um, and of course, there is a lot to to be done in order to uh, create these relationships with those companies, but also figure out how we can produce those wind turbines here in New York State to create those jobs. And what I meant by, you know, establishing um, the supply chain here um, so that, you know, perhaps uh, big aerospace companies like Magellan, which is actually a company that's located in Corona, Queens, that I represent, they produce parts for airplanes from Guardia Airport. They actually have the technology to also be able to produce wind turbines because it's very similar and they should be doing so that so that we can explore the possibilities of course here on our own shorelines. So these are these are the odds and ends that we're putting together. We're working actually very closely with Cornell University's uh, ILR Climate Jobs Institute. So shout out to Lara Skinner and Lenore Friedlander and everybody out there um, because it's going to take uh, a lot of 
folks in academia, in government, in the business community in order to make this a, a real a, a reality for everyone. Right. And can you uh, uh, talk more about the role that uh, labor unions have played in the uh, wind ener- energy uh, uh, transformation in Denmark and why you see that as a, a model for New York? Well, as you know, you know, labor unions don't just fight for their members. They end up creating very important standards and expertise um, in their fields. And so I, I was very fortunate to have traveled to Denmark, not only with academics from Cornell and a few of my colleagues, but also labor leaders um, like Jim Shilito from the utility workers, whose members would directly be impacted. Um, because, of course, we want to start closing down all of these fossil fuel burning plants, but we want to make sure that we are doing right by those workers and properly transitioning them into the new work. So him being there so that he can ob- ob- observe um, all of the different uh, jobs that, that are possible um, and, and, and actually hear from the Danish themselves what that transition looked like. We actually were able to meet with the Danish uh, energy agency um, uh, or the DEA, if you will, a good <laughs> DEA, right. um, uh, about explaining how, how they went about this. Um, it was really important to have Jim there. It was really important to have Devon Lomax from the painters there. Um, because these wind turbines need to get painted and maintained every year, right? So everybody's going to have to play a role here. And having those labor leaders there really allows us to not just imagine, but design a skeleton of what that process might look like um, so that we can get to work and, 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 and put our plan on paper. Right. And what what do you say to people who... who- think of uh wind turbines being offshore as uh some sort of eyesore i mean that's uh argument that's been raised in other places to- well look i mean i i think that i'd rather have an eyesore than uh extreme temperatures and extreme rainfall and hurricanes uh so the eyesore doesn't seem as bad really in comparison it isn't comparison. beauty in the eye of the beholder but, i mean maybe wind turbines can be beautiful but But that being said, it doesn't have to be within our eyesight, actually, right? We can put wind turbines significantly offshore so that it's not uh, within our eyesight from the beach, if that so is the problem. That's actually a lot of what Long Island is starting to do now. Um, But New Jersey, New Jersey has been championing this and doing better than we are when it comes to uh, these offshore wind turbines. Oh, wait a minute. New York's playing second fiddle to New Jersey? Don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, we do have some uh, listeners in, <laughs> in New Jersey, so I'm sure they can uh, uh, high five over that. Uh, but uh, uh, so another uh, aspect with climate change, uh, of course, is in the here and now. And uh, as temperatures rise, uh, uh, working conditions for uh, uh, people in, in jobs that are uh, uh, exposed to the heat, uh, is becoming more perilous. Uh, can you talk about legislation uh, you've sponsored uh, here in New York to address that? Yeah, thank you for making that very important point. Uh, a reality is that a consequence of climate change is that when it's really hot outside, workers like 
delivery workers like UPS and FedEx workers, farm workers, even some of the Amazon warehouse workers. If the AC is not working, they are doing some really heavy lifting, literally, that can make them pass out because they're not being provided with the adequate number of breaks. They probably aren't being provided with a shady area to take those breaks, much less water to stay hydrated. So, of course, you know, my job, particularly as chair of labor, is to identify these issues where, you know, companies are are just not stepping up the way they should. And this past session, I actually introduced um, a bill called the Temp Act, uh, with my counterpart, um, Assemblywoman Latoya Joyner, where we're proposing exactly what I just said, that companies provide their workers with adequate amount of time for breaks, for catching their breath, for going to the restroom, for staying hydrated, making sure that they have access to water. Um, and, and this is really, really important unless we do something to, to you know, slow down climate change. Um, so I'm really hoping that this is at the top of the order once we return to session this January. Okay. Uh, and um, also another aspect of climate change is it, it in part uh, drives uh, migration um, along with uh, uh, poverty and crime and in, in, in countries like Venezuela and Cuba, uh, U.S. sanctions uh, only pile on and make it worse. But climate change is definitely a uh, part of the problem. Uh, uh, can you uh, talk uh, about how you feel the city is handling the influx of uh, migrants uh, we're seeing? Oh, that's an easy question. Uh, it's being handled very poorly. You know, actually, before the the um, big wave of asylum seekers that, that has been arriving now for about a year to here to New York, I first started to notice uh, the effect of climate change on immigration with the Pakistani floods that mm. happened. Um, and, you know, in Jackson Heights, we have a very sizable and vibrant South Asian uh, population. And we started to see um, a small influx of Pakistani immigrants arriving um, because they they lost their homes and they had nowhere else to go. Um, this is this is a very real humanitarian crisis. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think that um, that is the sentiment that is being communicated through the actions of the city, the current city administration. You know, it, it, it's I it's we're not in crisis because of the asylum seekers. For starters, the asylum seekers themselves are in crisis because they don't have a home because they're looking for safety. And when when we're reading articles from Gothamists, for example, that state that there are 13,000 rent-stabilized apartments that sit empty every year, knowing full well that before that 100,000 asylum seekers arrived, we already had 100,000 homeless New Yorkers, including children, sleeping on the street, going to bed at night hungry, right? Knowing full well that not only do we have these rent-stabilized apartments, but there are whole neighborhoods like Hudson Yards where there are luxury apartments that sit empty year-round. What, what, what the crisis is, is a political will. We have a crisis of the political will to resolve our housing crisis, to put housing first, not create so many obstacles for people to be able to qualify for housing and ensure that 
we're providing them and with the services and with the economic opportunities um, that are necessary. Look, I mean, an, another issue that we're having that goes um, hand in hand with this one is the the rise in street vendors in, in, in Queens and across the city. Because the problem is when we don't have immigration reform at the, at the national level, that means that these people are having a really hard time finding a good quality job because they don't have any working papers. So the work that is available to them is actually quite dangerous. The men, mostly men, you might decide to become a day laborer. And we know what that story is like here in New York. It's very dangerous to be a non-union construction worker. The women might go into domestic work. The and, and, and a lot of them end up going into street vending. And this, unfortunately, is not being respected despite being honest work. And it shouldn't be pit against those of us who have been living here for a long time who have been begging the city for more sanitation and more services for our streets. We don't want our vendors to go to jail. We want clean streets and we want the city to establish a system of vending that will bring order, that will bring regulation, that will bring taxation. But the formalization of those smallest businesses will allow them to have a fighting chance to actually make ends meet in one of the most expensive cities in the world. The math doesn't math. Uh, we, are, we are actually throwing our taxpayer dollars away every time we put up and take down these refugee camps, whether it's on Randall's Island or anywhere else. We're wasting time. We're wasting resources, not helping these folks actually attain the economic opportunity that they deserve and have been so desperately seeking. And how would you assess overall the job that the Adams administration is is doing at this juncture? Is the uh, the poorly handled migrant crisis uh, emblematic of a larger dysfunction in city government? Well, you know, I have a very unique perspective having worked for the previous mayor. Um, I was part of the team that helped put universal prepay together. So it's been really disheartening for me, particularly as a mother, to see how uh, 3K, how the daycare system um, and daycare providers have been denied the compensation and, 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 and the payment for their services. And actually, it's become harder for people to find child care, not easier. So that's another point of, of, of criticism for me. You know, my, both of my kids are now school age. And actually, my youngest child attends an elementary school that got a half a million dollar budget cut last year. And, you know, those budget cuts aren't, aren't, you know, aren't just nothing. Half a million dollars. It's not like, oh, you know, the school is under enrolled, so we're going to send fewer toilet paper rolls this month to that school. No, the budget cut translates to fewer arts and music teachers. It translates to um, a, a guidance counselor getting uh, removed or laid off. These are dire conse dire consequences at a time when, you know, we just survived the pandemic. I have children in my district who lost both parents. Um, we need more resources right now, not less. Right. Now, you can imagine where maybe where some of these questions are headed, which is... Uh, in uh, in the May Independent, 
uh, we we listed seven uh, people we thought could be potential strong challengers to Eric Adams um, in 2025. Uh, you were one of them, and then and uh, more recently, the the New York Times uh, reported on a meeting of progressive, uh, I guess, uh, uh, leaders or uh, influencers uh, who were casting about hoping to find a 2025 mayoral candidate. Um, and and uh, your name apparently is being uh, bandied about. Uh, uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, I, I, I know oh. you're not going to announce anything right, right away, but uh, one, just the I guess sort of the consideration and, and the fact that your name keeps on popping up and um, well, that's all very flattering. I mean, I, I think above all that speaks to my work ethic, that speaks to my legislative record, and that speaks to the love that that hopefully is palpable. Um, you know, the love that I feel for my community. Um, I just announced that I'll be running for re-election next year. Um, so I'm definitely going to be returning to the state Senate in 2024, um, voters willing. Um, and we'll see what the future holds. The truth is that, you know, being a lifelong diehard New Yorker, loving my city the way I do, I'm ready to serve in any way that is required of me. Um, and whether, whether that's being front or center or playing a supportive role in ensuring that our city is administered appropriately, um, you can always count me in. You can, you can always count on me for that team. Okay. So not ruling anything out. Uh, people can, uh, maybe draw some hope, uh, hope from that. Uh, New York's still looking for its first, uh, female year, a mayor after more than 300 years. Um, as well as uh, maybe a mayor with a little bit more uh, substance and uh, focus on the job. Um, I, I assume uh, maybe if we if we get a new mayor, the next one won't spend quite as much time uh, at the at the nightclubs and the uh, less swagger and more work. <laughs> sounds good. Now, one other disappointing uh, New York big New York disappointment uh, this year uh, has been the the downfall of the New York Mets. I know you're a passionate. A baseball fan, and um, if you want to uh, weigh in on that for a moment, okay. uh, well, well, for for the record, we're not out, so we're still in. And, and um, you can take heart from the fact the Yankees are also uh, yes, playing both out. New York team, both New York teams are having a lot of trouble um, in the past weeks and months. Look, I mean, we started out with a sixty million dollar roster, which was unprecedented. Um, I, I'm, I'm particularly, as, as, as a Colombian New Yorker, very happy that Quintana is back pitching the way he is. Um, I mean, he's only had three runs scored on him um, for the past few games. So I, I'm feeling really proud and kind of waiting for the Quintana jersey to go to be sold so that I could buy one. Um, but we'll see if, if they have enough time to turn it around. I'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll never lose faith until until I absolutely have to. So I'm still rooting for my Mets. Um, and if not, well, there's always next year. That's the good thing about being a Mets fan is we're so used to being disappointed that, well, we'll, we'll always carry our hope until next year. Right. And, and uh, also, uh, the, the Mets owner, Steve Cohen, uh, the richest owner in baseball, but he's also uh, angling for a, a, a casino license out in Flushing. Um, in Corona. I'm sorry. So your thoughts, does... Does Queens, uh, is that like a real economic development uh, or? Are casinos real economic development? Is it something uh, Queens needs? Is it something you want to? 
Well, nobody needs a casino, John. <laughs> uh, nobody needs a casino. Nobody needs to gamble. Um, but unfortunately, we live in a place called New York where casinos have largely, and, 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 and entertainment in general, right? I mean, golf clubs, um, ski resorts have traditionally been seen as a means to create jobs and to foment uh, economic activity in specific areas. I think that it's actually, generally, I think it's very sad that that's our state of affairs. Um, when we could be uh, incentivizing uh, more creation and building of affordable housing and services, supportive housing that we actually need. Um, but that's an ongoing conversation between Steve Cohen and my community. I was very fortunate to, to host a very robust um, town hall in, in late spring, early summer. And I'm hoping to have a second town hall come fall. It will be a decision that we make as a community. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to continuing that conversation um, and seeing what can be done. The reality is that no matter where that casino gets built, because a casino will be built, um, mm -hmm. it, it will be the people of my district who end up uh, filling those hospitality jobs as we always do. Um, so it's, it's really a question about whether it needs to be in our backyard or not and what that actually means for the long-term health of my community. Okay, well, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos from Queens, uh, thank you as always for joining us on the Independent News Hour. It's always great to have you with us. That was See the Light by Earth, Wind, and Fire. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. Uh, we're going to uh, join our next guest, uh, uh, Nicholas Powers, uh, shortly. Uh, and we're looking forward to talking to Nick, as always. Uh, but first, I want to encourage everyone who can do so uh, to please help support this station. You can uh, make a one-time contribution or sign up as a WBAI buddy. 
and become a monthly sustainer for as little as $10 a month. Uh, and you can do that by calling uh, 212-209-2950 or going to give number two WBAI.org. If you become a WBAI buddy, you're eligible for all sorts of awesome uh, benefits uh, for doing that. And uh, you also uh, get the satisfaction of helping keep this station on the air. Our WBAI buddies are really the uh, financial bedrock of the station, the, that 10 or 15 or 20 or $50 a month if you have it. Uh, really, uh, as it comes in each month, it helps uh, give this station some financial stability. We know WBAI's uh, been through a number of financial challenges over the years, but it has managed to stay on the air. It continues broadcasting on 99.5 FM from our uh, uh, transmitter at four times square in the middle of Manhattan, a signal beaming across uh, the five boroughs and into Long Island and, uh, and uh, the Hudson Valley and into New Jersey. And it's all made possible by listeners like yourself. Uh, and, and it's WBAI's listeners for 63 years that have kept this station on the air. There's no uh, big corporations, no billionaires uh, funding uh, WBAI. This is uh, grassroots, independent media, listener-sponsored uh, commercial radio, or non-commercial radio, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio. Uh, uh, WBAI was the third, uh, or no, actually the, the second, I believe, uh, Pacifica station to go on the air in 1960. No, it was the third. It uh, was the pi- third. Pioneering. Uh, listeners sponsored uh, radio long before NPR came on the scene. So again, it, it, when you call 212-209-2950, you make all of this possible. You make that absolutely uh, unique voice of uh, WBAI possible. You can also pull out the plastic and go to give number two WBAI uh, dot org. And whether you can make a one-time contribution, I mean, maybe you can only give 10 or $20 and, if that's what you could do, that's great. If you can give more, 50, 100, 200, 500, even 1,000, uh, that would be incredible. WBAI definitely has some bills to pay. Uh, the uh, rent on that antenna and transmitter at four times square, it's a saying go, the rent is too damn high, but we have to, to pay it. It's $17,000 a month to keep that antenna and transmitter going at four times square, and it's listeners like you that uh, keep that signal uh, uh, going. And when you do, you not only support uh, the independent news hour, but all the other uh, outstanding programming that uh, WBEI carries uh, throughout the week, uh, news and public affairs, uh, music shows, cultural shows. Uh, this evening, after we uh, sign off in about half an hour, uh, there will be Democracy Now! from 6 to 6.30, Interpersonal Update with Harriet Fraud Wolf from 6.30 to 7, Revolutions Per Minute, the show of the uh, NYC uh, chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America will be on from 7 to 8 p.m. Out FM from 8 to 9 p.m. There will be a, a special broadcast from 9 to 10 p.m. And Cat Radio Cafe from uh, 10 to midnight. So, you know, once again, it, it, it really just comes down to our listeners uh, being willing to continue to support this station. You can call 212-209-2950 or go to Give number two, WBAI.org, and help keep 99.5 FM on the air and in the hands of the people. Have we ever lost this station? 
we never get it back. One more time, 212-209-2950 or give number two, WBAI.org. Turning now to our second segment, we are excited to be joined by longtime independent columnist and contributing editor, Nicholas Powers. Uh, Nick is currently working on his fourth book, which explores the intersection of psychedelics, race, and systems of power. It also asks where psychedelics would fit in a socialist revolution. Nick is also preparing to leave in a few days for Burning Man, the annual late summer countercultural extravaganza that's held uh, in the Nevada desert. The festival draws upwards of 80,000 people, and Nick has been attending Burning Man for the past 20 years. So he will fill in all of us non-burners on what all the hype is about this event. Nick, welcome back to the Independent News Hour. Oh, it's good to see my my friend John. How are you doing? Uh, doing good as always. Uh, and uh, so let's start. Uh, uh, tell us more about this uh, uh, new book you're working on. I understand you almost got it done. So uh, what can we be looking forward to here? Yeah, thank you. So the new book is tentatively titled either Black Psychonaut or Tripping on Race. And the cover may have, you know, a, a mouth with a tongue flapping out and a big LSD tap right on the tongue. So, you know, it's one of those gotcha images. And then hopefully when the reader um, whose interest is is heightened by the, the cover opens up the book, what they find is um, a journey that takes you from how... In this moment, black celebrities like Chris Rock um, are being open about taking ayahuasca and doing therapy. And obviously, this comes on the heels of others like Mike Tyson talking about doing DMT and mushrooms to heal his psyche after being battered, not just physically in the boxing ring, but spiritually and mentally by, you know, corrupt managers, uh, jail sentences, uh, the loss of a child and his own personal childhood traumas and demons. And so what you see is that there's a kind of elite uh, of people of color, a media elite of celebrities who are turning to psychedelics, um, specifically psychedelic therapy as a way of addressing childhood trauma. Uh, and Will Smith uh, talked uh, with, I think it's Vanity Fair uh, magazine about doing ayahuasca um, as well. And what a common thread is, is that uh, some of these celebrities actually grew up in very, very, very rough poor neighborhoods where there was a lot of violence both inside the home and outside on the street. And although that trauma sometimes drove them, into kind of defensive behaviors for Will Smith. It was joking. Chris Rock, it was joking for Mike Tyson. It was boxing, but it drove them to become great success that when they reached a level of success that they really began to kind of turn back or turn inwards and ask, you know, what were some of the, some of the pain that drove me here? And so they start investigating psychedelic therapy as a, as a way of kind of pulling down the veil and looking inside the deeper layers of their of their mind, of their memories, of their childhood. And what many of them say was that psychedelic therapy was kind of like a jet fuel blast and that it accelerated their healing. So, you know, something that maybe could have taken years, they got to revelations and understandings about themselves and literally days or weeks or sometimes hours and minutes. And so what the book does is it launches from there 
to really ask the question of what role does psychedelic therapy have in healing the intergenerational trauma caused by systemic racism, systemic poverty, uh, sexism and homophobia, classism, and then further, what role could it possibly have in a socialist revolution? And um, so, I, you know, I'm happy to report it's about maybe just 10,000 words away from being finished, kind of landing the plane. And it it was um, a very powerful experience to write. So just got to ask, did you uh, uh, trip any when you were uh, writing the book or have you got <laughs> enough trips in already? You know, it's kind of like being the designated uh, driver at a party. So like everyone else can get drunk and do the drugs and hook up in the bedrooms, but you got to be the one to make sure people get home in one piece. So for me, it's like, yeah, no, I couldn't trip while I was writing the book. Um, you know, I had to in some ways be like more sober because, uh, you know, you're looking at you're, you know, looking at scholarly articles, you're following up on, on media, uh, looking at concepts from sociology or criminology, uh, looking at, uh, memoirs and novels and artwork. So, you know, all of that for me puts you in the mind more of a, of a writer and a researcher. Um, and if I, if I was doing acid, I think I would just, huh? Of a square. Yeah, I had to be a square. So that's, that's the contradiction. A square had to write a hippie book. <laughs> uh, so, what was your own uh, uh, original psychedelic journey? I mean, what what originally brought you to psychedelics, and did uh, did it provide? What did it provide you? The first time I heard about psychedelics was actually my mom telling me about doing LSD in the '60s, and she said that you know she was a community organizer. She hung out with the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, you know, here in New York. And she says, "Look, honestly, after a while, you just get tired of political rhetoric. You know, you, you still do the work. You you show up." You know, you help the tenants fight the landlords and you protest the Vietnam War. But she's like, there's only so many, so much time you can, you know, you could hear the political jargon. So she'd hang out with hippies and then the hippies would give her LSD and sugar cubes and she'd dance. And she said it was just really mind refreshing, you know, dancing and playing. And you kind of remembered why you were fighting so hard because you wanted to have a world where there was more love and more play. But she says, you know, at some point you began to feel like the hippies were just kind of on this constant escape route. And so, you know, she'd go back to the Young Lords and Panthers and organizing. So she kind of bounced back and forth. And then um, I really didn't do psychedelics until I was in college. And I was reading, you know, I was in the, the film program and then eventually I switched to literature. And I was reading, you know, Allen Ginsberg and I was, you know, uh, reading the mystics as well as, you know, manuals about film history and, and literature and poetry and I was invited to raves, you know. Um, so at that time in Boston in the 90s, a lot of the, 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 the suburbs, the factory towns outside of the city were empty. You know, the factories had moved from globalization. And so that's where the rave scene took over those factories and turned them for one or two nights into this brightly lit, you know, joyous incubator of fun. So house music. And that's where I tried MDMA. And was just astounded by the euphoria, not only of the drug itself, but of the setting of the drug, which was, you know, everyone in those playful cargo pants and fluorescent colors of the 90s. But people were happy and hugging and helping each other out and carpooling and sharing water and drinks and food. And it was like what my mom said about Woodstock. There was this, this sense that everyone was your sister and your brother. And we were all there in a sense, trying to create a, a world that was different from the nine to five world of gray shadows wearing, you know, gray business suits and, you know, handling dead money. 
And so I did a more LSD in college and it was, I would say more of an artistic and spiritual journey. Um, you know, going to the river, Charles River and watching the sunrise and just feeling your consciousness become more fluid and liquid and feeling the different layers of your brain. But then actually I stopped after college, uh, not for any particular reason. It was just kind of out of the scene and then, you know, I had to get back into the world. And then the turning point for me for psychedelics, I'd say the modern was when I went to Burning Man in 2002. So I, you know, I, I was in Boston and I moved back to New York to go to graduate school in August 2001. So September happens. And that whole year, you know, we were terrified and shaking and angry, worried about our friends, mourning those we lost. And a year after 9-11... Just to be in- clear, you, you taught at the Borough of Manhattan Community yeah. Campus, which is just up the street from where yeah. the Trade Center was located. Yeah, I remember the like seven weeks after when we were finally, you know, to finish up the semester, we had like three weeks in the semester... Um, and walking past this big steaming rubble, not, uh, not steaming, but this big rubble. Um, and you know, you can smell the kind of chalk Ajax kind of smell of, of the rubble. And it was right there. There's this massive mountain. And so that was in our bodies, that tension, that anger. And so I went to Burning Man in 2002. And to be honest, the first time I went, I hated it. I, the, within two days, I wanted to get out. And I was, I was so angry that people here were having so much fun. While my neighbors were mourning, you know, their dead uh, daughters and sons and family members that were, uh, you know, buried underneath the rubble. And so now as I was like fixing my tent and I was thinking about heading out, there was this guy like just two tents over. And he goes, hey, you know, are you from New York? And I could tell from his accent he was from New York, too. And I was just like, yeah, you know, and he goes, yeah, my name is Tony. You're and from I was like, New York? Yeah, right. And then uh, and I told him, I was like, I didn't like this. I was like, I'm, I'm going to leave. And he goes, I, I, I know how you're feeling. So he came over and he dropped a, a tab of acid and ecstasy, a pill of ecstasy and acid in my hand. He goes, look, this is not a cure. You know, nothing's going to take away the pain that you're feeling, but at least it's going to help you understand it. So I took it. And I remember just leaving. I just walked. I just walked away from the camp and, you know, the ecstasy and the acid kicked in and I just felt like I was floating. And when I went out past Burning Man, this little trash fence, and I hopped over the trash fence and I got walking out. And when as as I peeked, it looked as if the stars were snow coming down, like I was catching snow from the sky from the night. And I finally burst, and all of the feelings of nine eleven just kind of came out. And I cried, and I cried, and I shouted, and I punched the desert, and it just like came out. And when I finished, and I stood up, and it was like like you know tears and dust had become mud on my face, you know, so my face was covered with like tear mud. And I, and I got up and I just felt empty. I felt good, cleansed. And I went back to the Burning Man and there was this big bonfire and people were dancing around the bonfire naked. And I took off my clothes and I danced around this big bonfire naked and sweating. And, and then the sunrise came and I felt at peace and I stayed for Burning Man the rest of the time. And then when I flew back and I landed in JFK and, you know, my, there's still dust in my dreadlocks and, I came out and I could feel that my body was more relaxed and I looked around and I could see other New Yorkers that were still tense and I knew that that tension was going to be there for years. And so that was my first experience with psychedelic therapy. And and again, it was not in a doctor's office. There was no kind of soothing music or candles. You know, it was out in the middle of the desert 
It was surrounded by stars and fire, but it was very, very cleansing. And that's why when I got um, in 2017, I was invited to, to give a talk at Horizons, and I drew upon that experience and to say to kind of be basically a testimonial that psychedelic therapy really does flush memories out of your out of your body and trauma and angst, anxiety and terror and shame. It it, it can flush it out of your body and give you the distance to look at it. And to be able to reintegrate it into a larger story that, that leaves you stronger and more empowered and you're not feeling, you know, torn apart, um, by these subconscious emotions, like, you know, shadows with claws on them ripping you apart. And so it felt really, really good. And, and for people who, uh, worry that if they, if they use psychedelics, they, you know, that it might, uh, you know, drive them crazy or, 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 or harm them in some way uh what what are your thoughts on that i think i would say they they listen too much to richard nixon a lot of that is drug war propaganda and i mean look of course there are going to be a, a minority of people who unfortunately have a very bad physical reaction to psychedelics and it's also not advisable for people who are suffering from say schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder for a basic reason is that you know psychedelics to some extent dissolve the ego the way the chemicals work is that they wind up suppressing what's called the kind of default network in your brain it's a subsystem in your brain that kind of gives you the the autobi- autobiographical sense of yourself so the part of you that thinks of the part of you that's that thinks of you and talks of you in the past and future, there's that subsystem that collects all the data from the different parts of your brain and summarizes it into your inner narrative. And psychedelics kind of suppresses that. And so the other parts of your brain start to talk. And that's that feeling of synesthesia, like colors have temperature and sound has has, you know, feels like it's waiting. And, it, you know, you have synesthesia. So that's why it's not it's. It's not advisable for people who have mental disorders which are disintegrative, you know, that the, the are splitting apart. But if you have a pretty stable ego, but you're, you know, dogged by depression or anxiety or obsession and you're kind of finding yourself ruminating over and over again and you're kind of locked inside the same loop of thoughts, you're like imprisoned in your brain and you want to get out, then psychedelics are helpful for that. Um, and also if you're an well, artist. People with PTSD and... Yeah, PTSD. And that's the thing is that the science, you know, has been done now really since the 50s. Uh, it obviously took a hit in, you know, the early 70s because of the prohibition and the, the uh, psychedelics as well as mushrooms and, and, and then eventually MDMA were illegal, are still illegal. Um, but you know, there was, there was a lot of medical research done then and there's more medical research being done now and with actual patients. So MAPS, one of the major organizations, has actually run uh, tests with MDMA and um, Iraq War veterans who were dealing with PTSD, you know, depression, obsessive thoughts, suicidal thoughts. And there was this one interesting case that the, the, the head of MAPS, his name is Rick Doblin, was on the Joe Rogan show, and he talked about this one vet who was having a deep depression, and he took MDMA and then had therapy. And one of the things that came out of the therapy was that this vet, had lost a lot of friends in, in Iraq. Um, they were killed. And so he was deeply depressed and had suicidal thoughts of his own. And what in, in the MDMA, you know, trip, he actually 
saw his friends again. He and he his friends came to him and told him, "Stop trying to kill yourself out of loyalty to us. If we were still alive, we'd want you to be alive. We want you to live your life to the fullest because we can't do that anymore." And so he realized that his depression and his suicidal thoughts were a form of loyalty to his dead friends until he realized that his dead friends would want him to live because they couldn't live. And so just that moment of revelation just freed him from guilt and it cured him really of PTSD. His symptoms vanished almost instantaneously uh, and he was able to live his life fully. And that's just one example of many people who deal with child abuse, PTSD, depression, um, have had turnarounds because of psychedelic therapy. So, you know, this, you know, the science is in. Like, none of this is surprising. You've, you've got a back catalog of people who have been helped by, by psychedelic therapy. Mm. Um, can you also uh, talk about uh, what you see as sort of the sort of limitations of, of therapeutic culture and, and how, uh, and how it sort of, uh, limited our, uh, ability to, to see, uh, you know, the, kind of what psychedelics could do in their fullness. Uh, you've talked in the past about how the, the counterculture of the late sixties, uh, it, it sort of ha- was able to claim a vision for not only how to, uh, their own lives, but uh, of uh, how society should change. Yeah. It's when psychedelics have been a part of, of many cultures across, you know, the centuries, across the continents, obviously ancient uh, Greece had, uh, you know, psychedelics. It was used by the the prophets. They actually would kind of dip their head into these vapors coming out of a crevice and basically get high and 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 talk about prophesize of the future. Obviously, the Mayans and the Aztecs uh, used uh, psilocybin mushrooms extensively uh, for agricultural ceremonies. Uh, the ruling class of those cultures also used it in their ceremonies. Um, obviously, you know, the Native American tradition of psilocybin and peyote. Um, so many cultures have used psychedelics and generally it's been integrated into the, to the, the kind of the functioning of the culture, you know, one way or the other, using them in some ceremonial way to get in touch with your ancestors, uh, to celebrate, you know, uh, a life milestone, um, passing of birth or death. But in the 1960s in the United States, um, LSD, which was, you know, created by, um, Albert Hoffman in a laboratory accident in 1943, when it quote unquote escaped the lab, basically Timothy Leary and, um, uh, the, he would become later known as uh, Ram Das. I'm forgetting his name right now, but you know, they spread LSD wild, you know, wide and wildly. And it landed its, its most kind of big, well-known, famous, place for LSD and, and hippie culture in the United States was obviously Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in the 1960s, specifically the Summer of Love and the Bien. And what psychedelics began in the 1950s as, as kind of a new medicine to help people get over alcoholism and, and healing, you know, a little bit of, you know, like PTSD and abuse. So it was actually kind of what, what it is starting to be again now. But then when it escaped the lab and became part of the hippie counterculture, uh, hippies actually also used it, but in a very dramatic, different way, which was to deprogram themselves from the American dream. 
And so the American dream, you know, with its white picket fence and its monogamy and marriage and mortgage and its American flag and God bless America and hate communism and racial segregation and no blacks allowed and no Mexicans and no Jews, that that kind of Americana was dissolved like washing watercolors off of a canvas by a tab of acid. And so in Hate Ashbury, people actively took LSD to deprogram themselves from the American dream, from broadcast TV, from the church, from the family, because they wanted to find the more authentic ways of living. And that was a very radical use. And of course, it was sloppy and it was messy. Some people got deeply hurt and scarred and a few died. But a great majority of people actually found LSD to liberate their minds and to liberate their imagination to actually think that another world was possible. And they began then not to think about it, but to actually create that world with communes, different diets, uh, experimenting with spirituality, uh, radical politics, uh, sometimes socialism and communism. Um, so it, and so many of the, the changes in American culture that we now know as kind of like mainstream ideas actually were because LSD pried open the minds of a generation and allowed them to look around at this vista of possibilities and to see that much more was reality was, was, um, you know, was this garden of Eden and like you can walk into it and kind of pick the fruit of knowledge off the tree. Mm. So uh, we have about one more minute here. Uh, so a uh, real quick, uh, you're heading out to Burning Man in a few days. Can you just give us a quick thumbnail sketch of what this event is and what you'll be doing out there? You drive in on these long, you know, highways between dusty hills with burnt grass and, you know, you go to Reno and you pick up supplies and you meet friends. And as soon as you get there, you see this electric trail of bright smiles because everyone's giddy and excited. And you eventually drive out of Reno, 70 miles into this desert. And it's the flat, flat desert. It's the desert that you see in car commercials. It's, it's kind of like the desert you see in Oppenheimer's. It's just flat, it's flat. It's itself. Huh? It's a canvas. It's a blank painter's canvas and on this blank uh blank uh blank painter's canvas uh, people arrive by the tens of thousands in a in a stream of u-hauls and trucks and cars and cargo vans and rental cars and you, you know people get their camps ready and then the great building begins and people put up their shade structures and they start building the the art installations and you know the the center camp and the city rises out of dust and not just the city, but the art. And you see these huge amount of, of just incredible artworks. Like people build houses out there and art cars that look like TIE fighters or a Pac-Man or a shopping cart or a dragon. And they're all being driven around in the dust. And then there's the music begins and house music and live music and jazz and blues and, you know, dubstep and reggae and Middle Eastern music and African drumming and, cacophony of sounds are coming up and and everyone there's just giddy and dancing and there's a bar everywhere and people are filling up your your cups for free and smoking weed and dancing and there's an orgy dome and people are half naked and people are making out and marriages are broken up and marriages are begun kids are conceived right. on the playa uh <laughs> you know stds to... are transmitted it's amazing <laughs> and then it's all uh sent up in flames at the end yeah um, big Big bonfire at the end for all the uh, creations. Well, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Obviously, uh, Nick, you're sounding very excited to get to get out there in a few days. Uh, Nicholas Powers, a, a longtime indie columnist, 
Thank you so much for joining us again on today's show. And, and that's it for this week's Independent uh, News Hour. Thanks to our uh, audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, also uh, Amu Gagarian helping out uh, behind the scenes. We will be off uh, next week, but we will be back on Tuesday, September 5th. Thank you. And uh, our outgoing uh, music here is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by the Beatles. Cheer yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope.